I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And my guest today is Angelus Arian. The first half of life is like act one and act two of a great play. And the second half of life is like, how are you all going to bring it to resolution? You know, is this going to be a comedy, a tragedy, a history? You know, uh, you know, it's the third act and the exquisiteness of knowing and the urgency uh, that knowing that, you know, we're on the westward side of the mountain. We've, you know, we don't know how much time that we have left. And so things become more meaningful, you know, uh, little things become more meaningful. The use of time becomes more meaningful. Uh, people we want to spend time with, activities that we want to be involved with, uh, how to generate and uh, pass on uh, to our children and grandchildren and how to face and how to prepare for the ultimate mystery, uh, which is our death, which is another birth. Angelus Arian is a cultural anthropologist, award-winning author, educator, and consultant to many organizations and businesses. She lectures and conducts workshops worldwide, bridging cultural anthropology, psychology, and comparative religions. Her work is currently used in medical, academic, and corporate environments. Angelus is the president of the Foundation for Cross-Cultural Education and Research and a fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Welcome, Angelus. Hello, and thank you very much for all that you do. Oh, well, and thank you for being on our show today. Yeah, my honor. And you have written a book called The Second Half of Life, uh, Opening the Eight Gates of Wisdom. And it's, it was actually a compilation from a Sounds True audio that you made, is that right? Yes, in 1998, I believe it was. Okay. But before we get into the book, I would like to ask you, you are an anthropologist, are you? Yes. And um, what is it that fascinates you about people that brought you to this work? Basically, I was raised biculturally. I have uh, family in, in the States and in Spain, and... Uh, and having that experience of being um, first generation from an immigrant family, um, I became very interested in people worldwide, and uh, that took me into international work and cross-cultural work, and, and anthropology was a young discipline at the time, and so I thought if I was going to uh, go back to graduate school, it would be in a discipline that would take a look at music and art and philosophy and religion of all the cultures. And mm -hmm. so basically that's what I've done for the last 35 years. And you've written extensively about the Tarot. Yes. What is it that brought you to the Tarot? Well, I'm very, I've always been interested in symbols and myths, and part of my cultural anthropology background was uh, not only um, focusing on comparative religions, but uh, myths and stories and legends and folklore worldwide, and especially taking a look at symbolic languages uh, uh, worldwide. And so basically I became interested in Tarot since it is a symbolic map. Um, I was curious. I was in graduate school at the time writing a book, uh, writing a paper rather on uh, the psychology of superstition. And so I came across the Tarot and, and as a result um, I, I was dis disappointed in what I had read about the Tarot and decided that here was an incredible uh, ancient 
uh, book of wisdom that was comparable to the I Ching's uh, book of wisdom, the book of changes. And the I Ching took a look at nature uh, as, as a symbolic map uh, and how to, as nature changed, then how did people change? And, um, and also the Tarot, uh, initially uh, the, in China, uh, they were pictographs of, of the concubines' experiences uh, with different um, dynasties. And then in Egypt, it became both an exoteric map and, and an esoteric map. A map of the inner world and of and the, the outer, outer world. world. Yeah. 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 And then it became popular uh, after it was taken um, in the Middle Ages. It was put into card form and out of the Book of Wisdom. So uh, that's where it's become more of a divination tool or fortune-telling tool. But I really wanted to put it back into its original um, Book of Wisdom. And so that's why I wrote the Tarot Handbook. And it's a Book of Wisdom or a discipline of wisdom yes. uh, that is really for uh, mapping the inner terrain, would you say? Yes, uh, internally and externally, both, um, on both and. It's everything that you'd ever want to know about life, both externally and internally. Each suit is representative of a different level of consciousness. Swords are often referred to as the mental uh, level of consciousness and cups the emotional and wands, uh, the spiritual or the intuitive, and discs or pentacles or whirls as the outer world. Um, I've been a practitioner of the Yi Ching for many years. Oh, wonderful. Could you talk to us a little bit about uh, the synchronous aspect? Because I know that uh, Carl Jung wrote quite a bit about that. Yes. Um, And what would you want our listeners to know about the synchronous aspect of of the Tarot? I think like the I Ching or any oracular tool that these are any of the esoteric philosophies are are really mirrors of internal and external states and synchronicity is when the inner and the outer come together and and, uh, collide together in such a way it can't be ignored. And that's actually a a good point about that because I think um, it's it's the release of the ignorance that helps one to become a whole person. Yes, that's true. And uh, 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 would you say, so the, with the reflection of the inner and the outer world, the tarot really reflects the, uh, the unknown contents of the unconscious to the conscious mind, is that? Yes, that would be an accurate way of stating that. You also talk in the book, of, in the second half of life, uh, about tracking. And, yes. And, uh, but you're not only talking about... Um, uh, the tracking in the way that uh, people would follow an animal. You're talking about the uh, the archetypal symbolism into into the unconscious. Yes, yes. Well, the the archetypes are uh, if we pay attention to the archetypes um, as Jung has identified them, we can track. Uh, there are signals in our dreams and in our daydreams and um, in the living dream. Uh, of what's really working on subconscious levels or unconscious levels. And sometimes many of us need greater wake-up calls when we miss the signs. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. so let's come to your book. And um, 
you also write in your book about the power of stories, and it seems like this is a series of, of stories about uh, what many of us who are baby boomers are looking at, you yes. know, now that a lot of us are over 50. And, um, and that also brings me to something else. There's a friend of mine who's going to be turning 50 this weekend, yes. a, a lady. And I had done some study with uh, Robert Bly and James Hillman and yes. Michael Mead in oh. the uh, men's conferences. Yeah. And they talk about the triple goddess. Uh-huh. And I, when I talked to my friend this weekend, I wished her a happy entry into the extraordinary realm of the crone. Uh-huh. Uh, well, she wasn't so happy about that. <laughs> what well, is it's... it about uh, that archetype that women are less uh, than happy to enter into? Well, I think that um, uh, Crone uh, initially was, uh, you know, I like to say entering into our years of the crown uh, because basically there's a dispar- uh, pejorative kind of disparaging aspect to, that has clustered around Crone, but it really is coming to the fullness of integrating the best of youth, midlife, and, and coming into the wisdom years, and really coming into the full harvest, into the full fullness of one's authentic nature and deep character. And there really are the years of the crown. Uh, because I, I was puzzled by that, because I feel like a woman who has uh, entered into that time is is uh, more beautiful than she's ever been before. Actually, right at the soul level, if right. if not the physical level, you know. Right. But our unfortunately, our culture doesn't recognize that quite in the same way as no. ancient cultures. Would you say? Yeah. Well, I think ancient cultures, and somewhere there was um, uh, a, a placement that somehow crone meant uh, hag or witch or uh, you know. So it's not a uh, an example of eldering, which, you know, we don't have uh, the disparaging term for a man who is elder, uh, is aging, uh, or... Uh, uh, not that it has the same impact. I'm thinking that, about that's right. a Scrooge that's right. or something like that, yeah. or a miser, but... Yeah, no, it, it, it's not the an, same. Um, the, the word crone carries an emotional charge yeah, to it. Yeah, it does. And I think Gene um, Boland's book on Crones Don't Whine oh, yeah. is, is a wonderful reframing uh, again of that. Uh, yeah. Coming into wisdom, uh, uh, the... Uh, the full woman is is really the archetype of Sophia that's integrated uh, both uh, the youth and uh, the adult and mm-hmm. the essence. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to come to your book now, um, The Eight Gates of Initiation into the Second Half of Life. And uh, uh, you also talk about four fires, and they sort of correlate with with the gates, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have already entered into the Silver Gate um, of new experiences. I've never met you before, and uh, we're talking about uh, new material. So tell us about the Silver Gate. And, and, but I'm getting ahead of myself again. Why did you write this book? I wrote this book for two reasons. Um, one, I was shocked by a statistic that uh, the U.S. has a, a kind of a horrific honor of holding is that we have the largest suicide rate between our teens and our elders than any other culture in the world. 
And I thought about that for a long time, and I thought, well, why would that be? And basically, one is that we're also the youngest culture, uh, although we have roots from all over the the globe have come to America. Um, but what is different is that in any other culture, the uh, g- uh, the bridges between the generations are still intact. There is no uh, separating out uh, in ageist kind of groups. Uh, America is also the most ageist culture in the world. And so we're not calling on... Uh, the energy and the vitality of our youth or the experience or the wisdom of our elders. And, uh, and so I, I, I wrote it primarily is, is to re-engage uh, uh, the incredible opportunity in the second half of life since we have more people in this culture than any other time in history. And this was the second reason is that uh, we have uh, more people now uh, after the year 2008 who will be over the age of 50 than any other age group in our culture. And so there's a huge initiation into our wisdom years and uh, in a youth-identified culture. And so we're going to need to um, re-establish that bridge building in order to solve some of the problems that are facing us in the world today. We're going to have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Angelus Arian. And how can people get a hold of you, Angelus? Uh, my website, www.angelusarian.com. And that's Arian with two R's. Yes, Great. thank you. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we will be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Angelus Arian. And welcome back. Thank you very, very much. And uh, now we can finally get to talk about your book, The Second Half of Life. And you were talking about before the break that uh, there's going to be some things that many of us are going to have to face now that we're, we're over 50. So yes. uh, tell, us, <laughs> tell us about the, the Silver Gate and the uh, archetypal uh, initiations. Well, I think um, first as we um, uh, turn 50... Um, uh, the decade of the 50s is often uh, seen as the uh, decade of integration or it's the decade of really bringing and calling the wisdom of our youth and our midlife. And and it's also a decade that's often referred to as a decade of, of decision because um, the uh, cross-culturally youth is seen from the ages of 1 to 35. Midlife is seen uh, from ages 35 uh, to 50. And then the decade of the 50s is really uh, the place of reassessment of how am I going to enter into my wisdom years. And uh, cross-culturally, um, uh, the wisdom years begin when we're 60. Uh, and 60s, uh, when we're 60 in that decade, it's the youth of our wisdom years. 70s is the midlife of our wisdom years. And true eldering or uh, wisdom keepers are 80 to 100. Uh, and so um, the newness that happens at the Silver Gate, especially for anyone over the age of 50, is that there's a huge shift that takes place from um, uh, acquisition uh, to divestiture, from uh, ambition in the first half of life to meaning in the second half of life, uh, an investiture from I to we. Uh, Moving the, out of being the, a householder. Yes, fact. right. Uh, much so like in India. 
And uh, so uh, any new experience, we've been at the Silver Gate many times in our lives, but in the second half of life, it's, it's really the degree to where we will be an effective elder or mentor others or be involved in generative uh, opportunities for midlifers and for youth as an elder or a wisdom keeper is that we have to um, be able to continue growing and passing on uh, what we've learned. And we'll do that only if it has meaning or is connected to the four fires uh, that the spiritual traditions speak of, which are the fire of vision, the fire of the heart, the creative fire, and the soul's fire. And so uh, it's uh, very important uh, um, to really embrace the new. Many people move into more of routine because uh, it's the illusion of control and have lost their sense of adventure and exploration and discovery. And so uh, in the second half of life, Anything that's new has to be attached to meaning, otherwise uh, it uh, will lose its um, uh, fascination quite readily. Well, because you've already gone through so much. Uh, Yeah, right, right. And and you go, well, why should I pick up with this? Yeah, absolutely. So so the meaning of the silver gate is to... Uh, is to embody that. Uh, yeah, the, the new, the new embrace the, the new. And, and even to, uh, you know, I know a practice that I often suggest for people around the uh, Silver Gate is that um, once a month your birthday comes around. So to do something new that you've never done uh, before and just see how you approach it and handle it because the ultimate new experience of our life is our death. And so... Uh, Um, once a month is to do something completely different that I haven't ever done so that at least uh, at the end of the year I know that I've approached the new and the unfamiliar and the unknown at least 12 times which has forced me to grow and to open up and reconsider uh, possibility. But that's tremendously revitalizing. Yes it can be. And you have have something to look forward to. Yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, oh absolutely. Goodness. So the would... silver gate. And then if we resist change, uh, this is the gate that uh, many people uh, who have issues around aging uh, will will turn their back uh, on this gate and look um, back either in uh, trading up in relationships with younger models or, uh, uh, or plastic surgery uh, yeah. and so on. And then, and then next we come to the white picket gate of changing identities. Yes, changing identities. Um, the, the gate that asks us to lose our teeth so our face will change, which is a symbol or a metaphor, uh, really, for letting go of old identities and, and allowing new identities or roles to emerge. And many of us get overly attached in the first half of life to certain identities. We believe that um, if I'm a doctor or a nurse or an executive or an entrepreneur or a teacher or an educator, that that's all of who I am. Well, there's a tremendous investment, emotional, yeah, uh, oh, financial, totally, psychological. Totally, totally. And so uh, there's a, a shift or a, a crisis that often takes place or an opportunity. I often like to think of crises as opportunity, but uh, uh, it's, <laughs> it's uh, 
you know, uh, all the cultures of the world have masks, and what are masks but a subconscious realization of old identities and new identities emerging. And, and in Africa, they have a saying, you know, that the mark of a person who has developed uh, real character is the one that has brought all their faces together, uh, the face of the child, the face of, of youth, the face of the adult, uh, the face of, um, of um, the wisdom years, and then the essence face, essence face that comes through. Um, and so uh, it's always interesting to see, uh, you know, when the roles of the mother or father change in the empty nest and uh, and yet parenting, we do it in different ways uh, all through the first half of life as well as the second half of life. But there are changing faces and and new identities emerging. Well, and with those new identities emerging, with those new identities emerging, then you talk about um, the clay gate, which is about intimacy. Yes, and I love the meaning of the word intimacy, which is into me see. Uh, <laughs> and so, I, yeah, I like that a lot. But the clay gate is really about self-respect and self-care. And it's the gate that we um, were first initiated into a uh, puberty where we become very conscious of the changes in our body and also... Um, the way we look, and so the body image gets very much uh, formulated uh, during uh, puberty and uh, through youth and young adulthood, and usually in our our 20s, 30s, um, we're really uh, invested in the body image, but it's it's really associated with our experience, uh, self-respect and our experiences of sensuality and sexuality. And it's the gate that's always changing because our, our relationship to sexuality and sensuality and body image changes from decade to decade. And so that's why it's the gate that's forever changing because uh, um, we learn to uh, eventually uh, that we're more than our body. Uh, mm-hmm. And that clay is not a fired clay; it's a no, malleable. Really, yeah, malleable, and so. So you can be a shapeshifter yes, and try totally. new things. Yes, totally. And approach relationship in a way that you hadn't thought about. Yeah, totally. And what's really interesting that before puberty, um, you know, we really looked at each other as our whole personhood. Oh, I like Billy. Can he come over? Or I like Susie. She's my best friend. And then. Uh, in in our fifties again, our our sixties, as we begin to re-see each other beyond gender, and, and reclaim again, looking at each other from a personhood base. Do I like this person as a person? Uh, do I like this man as a person? Do I like this woman as a person? Because uh, the anima and the animus yeah, have been reclaimed. Re- yes, absolutely. And they are not setting on your partner. Yeah, so absolutely. you're able to see yeah. the, the real human being that's right, there. Right, and so issues surrounding character and the soul become much more important than uh, the body image. So, um, and then we come to the black and white gate, and this is, well, with sexuality, it's about developing uh, your relationships further also. Yes, 
That's why most of the spiritual traditions of the world say that the most rigorous spiritual practice is the art of relationship because um, a relationship shows us where we're honest, where we're not, where we have courage, where we don't. Uh, uh, human beings are really here for two purposes, is to learn about love and to express love and to create. Uh, but, you know, how are we in our uh, capacities for relationship and intimacy in the truest sense uh, beyond games uh, and beyond control and appeasement and manipulation. And so this is the gate. It's the only gate of all the gates that we cannot go through alone. Uh, it's the relationship gate. You know, whether it's to go through it with an animal or a child or a friend or a colleague or a loved one or a partner. This is where we uh, really uh, learn about humility and uh, we learn about uh, where we have uh, tendencies to perform or edit or rehearse or hide or where the false self appears in relationships or where um, the authentic self appears in relationship and where it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But I really am intuiting with this that there's a primary relationship that one has, but then that relationship must be expanded to the family and then to the community right. and then to uh, right. one's country in the same way that uh, the I Ching said, if you would change the world, change yourself and then work with your family. Yeah. And then, So uh, talk to us some more about... about uh, the interface with this new self and your partner because the dyad then becomes uh, one, a, a unity right. that interfaces then with the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the community. Right. It's, uh, uh, I love that the wisdom years in, in many ways, true, elder, true eldering of any kind, especially in the second half of life, is about how to re-enchant the world and uh, how to really come back into mentoring and being uh, generative and connective uh, in not only your own family, but your extended family, and then into community, and then into culture and making a contribution, and then building bridges internationally and um, bridges between um, diversity, whether it's diversity of ideas, diversity of of um, race, uh, diversity of projects. Uh, um, um, there's so much richness and texture in them. And you can't do it alone. No, you can't. And uh, nor can you put your wisdom people away in waiting stations. Where they, you know... Uh, but once in a while, you have to take a break, and we're going to have to take a break just for a moment. <laughs> That's fine. Yes, I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Angelus Arian. And she has written a book called The Second Half of Life, Opening the Eight Gates of Wisdom. And how can people get a hold of you, Angelus? Uh, through my website, uh, www.angelusarian.com. Arian with two R's. Great. Angelus, like Los Angeles. Okay. Yes. Okay. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And my guest today is Angelus Arian. And welcome back, Angelus. Oh, thank you very much. And Angelus has written a book called The Second Half of Life, Opening the Eight Gates of Wisdom. And we've been through four of those gates already. And 
Now we come to the creative fire, which is actually some of my favorite part. Yes. Um, but I was curious, why did you name the uh, seventh gate the rustic gate? Or it's actually the fifth gate, I'm sorry. Yeah, the fifth gate. It's the rustic gate that's loose on its hinges and very beautiful oh. and and also uh, very uh, beautiful in its etching and, and its markings and carved. Uh, uh, it's a beautiful gate uh, because it's something that is sustainable and lasting. And our creativity, the creative fire, many of the myths of the world speak of the creative fire as the fire that takes no wood. Uh, and it's the fire that is always there, uh, wanting, uh, the human being always wants to create, wants to manifest, uh, is an instrument for creativity and manifestation and um, bringing uh, beauty into the world, whether it's through the arts, through music, through writing, uh, through all the callings, the professional callings or the disciplines that we're all drawn to. Uh, and it's at this gate that uh, we leave our, our, our creations or our projects or uh, uh, our contribution uh, that we've made with our gifts and talents. Um, it's a wonderful gate. And, and it's, it shifts in the first half of life. We often are drawn to uh, creativity that supports right livelihood. And then we put our, our avocations on the back burner, which often become our vocations in the second half of life because it has to have meaning. And, or we revisit roads that we haven't taken and might explore those uh, more in the second half of life as well. But there's got to be a real... Because um, I know sometimes people will get creative blocks... Uh, particularly in the changing of their identities and trying to figure out how to reinvent themselves, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and do you have some suggestions for, for overcoming uh, creative blocks or even finding this creative outlet that is really satisfying to one's soul? How do you recognize yeah. that? Well, I think it's so interesting that um, Dr. Gene Cohen, who is an MD, he, he's written a wonderful book called The Creative Age, um, The Second Half of Life. He had a number of people in their 50s coming to him and they, and, uh, as a physician, and, and they were very depressed and, and thought it was all over, and yet physically they were still in magnificent good shape. And so he took a sabbatical and began to take a look at, because no matter what he said, you know, they just wouldn't believe it because so much of our our collective consensus consensus trance in this culture is that <laughs> the end of uh, the second half of life is about the four D's: death, decline, disease, and uh, despair or depression. Right. Uh, rather than you know, uh, most people really come. Uh, more aligned with their creative fire in the second half of life. And he really wanted to explore that and see if that was really true. And so he wrote this book called The Creative Age, and he looked cross-culturally at all the, uh, the great people that we might know uh, that have really made their biggest contributions in the second half of life than they did in the first half of life. And so it's very inspirational. So then he went back uh, 
to being uh, a physician and could give this book to all the 50-year-olds or the 60-year-olds who are really in good health and saying, you know, look, uh, it's like Dr. Zeus, for example, um, for the first half of his life uh, was a, a precise illustrator of um, uh, fairy tales that were the grim fairy tales with the old block letters and it was very precise the line drawings of the big letters you know like the old manuscript text and sure. and so when he was 53 he thought enough of this enough of this and uh, and so he became uh, free so he became very free he said I've been illustrating all these old grim tales for you know the grim tales uh, <laughs> uh, for years and I want to write stories and I want to illustrate them without restriction and so we have the cat and the hat and then someone had asked him what was his most favorite book and uh, that he'd written, he said, well, it's the one that's called You're Only Old Ones. And um, and it's a very funny book. It's, it's I've never really, seen that, actually. Oh, it's, it's, it's just hilarious. And it's, you know, it carries the same uh, uh, flamboyance as the uh, Dr. Seuss series. And uh, so it's really, really wonderful. And so, uh, so that was the shift he made with still continuing with art. Um, but uh, the Basque um, mathematician uh, who later became a Nobel Prize winner of literature, Jose Echegueri, Echegueri, um, Isegueri, Echegueri uh, is his, the correct pronunciation of his last name. But when he was 22, he uh, had two loves, mathematics and then writing plays and uh, epic poetry and epic songs and and he knew that uh, mathematics would probably uh, if he ever got married and had children would support him so he's the first half of his life became very well-known mathematician and physicist and then uh, he too in his uh, when he was 58 uh, decided well all the kids were raised you know he was very uh, financially set because of his mathematical career and so then he started writing um, epic uh, theater plays and songs and poetry and um, when he was 72 to his delight he won the Nobel Prize of Literature and so so it's it's wow. stories like that that Gene Cohen has put together and uh, called the Creative Age that really support that we're really coming into a fire in the second half of life because it's attached to meaning rather than to ambition or to family expectations or cultural expectations about what success is. In the second half of life, there's a liberation and freedom that I'm going to really follow what has heart, meaning, and fire well, there's for a, me. There's a real depth of soul that's yeah, available there yeah, that you the, just don't have before yeah, this time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's you know, very and, true. And it, that really offers uh, a kind of richness, you know, yeah. Uh, that's not available. Well, next we come to the bone gate. Yes, the bone gate. Now that sounds sort of forbidding. <laughs> yes, well, it is in the black and white gate where we really learn a lot about our re repetitive patterns and relationship. In the bone gate, if we still didn't come into our humility and release some of our cleverness and 
um, kind of the ways that we deceive ourselves or that we the false self is still uh, functioning at the bone gate says this is where the false self is going to die whether you want it to or not uh, and so the bone gate is really it becomes more painful to be the false self than the authentic self and so there's like a, a shedding or what people say, oh, so-and-so really changed. They just, you know, lost it because they're no longer willing to do the false self performances uh, anymore. And uh, it's too painful to come uh, to keep that front up or all the needs to look good or have it together or be right or do it right or perfection or whatever. And there's such an incredible longing just to come home to be oneself. So the bone gate shreds the false self, and and uh, these are major wake-up calls that occur and that uh, you can't uh, ignore any longer. Uh, but that sounds awfully scary to me. Yeah, well, I mean, we all go through it, though. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's interesting. There are a lot of successful people, both male and female, but there are also successful people who are not very nice people. And the bone gate says, you know, you have to come back into your integrity uh, or you will be exposed. Uh, This is like the... I hope uh, we see some of our our country's current leaders in that uh, modality sooner than later. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting with the white-collar corruption. uh, um, You know, it's, it's surfacing. And this is really about transformation. Oh, totally. That one has no choice over. That's right. That that. Uh, uh, yeah, the soul is so much stronger than the ego, and it's the place where the ego has to take uh, a passenger seat or the back seat, but can't drive the vehicle anymore. And uh, so it tries to grab the wheel every now and then again, the ego. But the bone gates, uh, you know. The soul says, you know, uh, uh, the longing there, the longing to really be one's authentic nature is much stronger than the egoic needs. And Would you say then this is a, the, what's called the dark night of the soul? Yes. Well, I, I love uh, what um, Frances Vaughn has a, a, a wonderful saying where she said that uh, there's... No real such thing as a dark night of the soul, but there are many dark nights of the ego. <laughs> <laughs> but then we do emerge. Yeah, and then absolutely. we are the authentic one. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes people That's have never seen them. Painful, yeah, process for a lot of people. But sometimes people have never seen themselves like that. Yeah, that's very true. So in a manner of speaking, it can actually be a tremendous relief, would you yeah. say? Yeah, I think for some it's a tremendous relief. I think like a snake shedding its old skin, uh, you know, uh, what I love about snakes is that they once they've shed their skin, they never go back and try it on. Oh, no. Some of us like to, you know, once we've struggled in releasing, you know, uh, the false self, we try to put the old garment back on and it doesn't work. And talk about wisdom in this modality. Yeah, well, wisdom, uh, there's a big shift from power status and uh, money to real wisdom and, and making choices from a place of wisdom is very different than making them from a place of power unless it's right use of power. Uh, and this is a place where uh, we're really wanting to move uh, 
the shadow side of the critic is really wisdom. So if I have a very well-developed critic or judge, uh, on the other side of that is wisdom uh, that is really waiting. And wisdom and never goes to the extremes. There's an, a fair witness and fair self-talk that comes with the wisdom voice. The wisdom voice is never really critical or doubting or analytical. It's very declarative. It says, call now. Finish it by Friday. Time to rest. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's very, it's quite neutral. Oh, it's very neutral. And But there's tremendous strength there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no doubt either. Yeah, there's no doubt. And that's one of the key things, I think, that many of us who are in this stage, we begin to doubt uh, what, what we knew. Right, What we've been right. taught in our culture. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and uh, it's coming to this authentic yeah. uh, knowledge that's actually true to oneself. Yes, absolutely. And looking again at what really is true for oneself. My goodness. Well, uh, we're so it can be an exciting gate as well as a. uh, Well, yeah. You know, there's a lot of energy here. Yeah, because it's really the gate that allows for freedom and liberation, true freedom and liberation. Well, in a way that one has never experienced before. That's right. That's right. You know, there's there's intimations of it, but but uh, and particularly in relationship, if you love someone, you can dissolve to the relationship. But this is about. The core being of oneself. Yes, absolutely. Emerging into uh, the present time. Well, I'm, I'm afraid at present time we have to take another break. Thank I'm you. I'm Anthony Wright. I am your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, Angelus Arian. And how can people get a hold of you, Angelus? My website, www.angelusarian.com. Great. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're here talking with my guest, Angelus Arian. Welcome back. Thank you very much. And Angelus has written a book called The Second Half of Life, Opening the Eight Gates of Wisdom. And we've talked about six of the gates so far, but now we come to the natural gate about satisfaction, grace, peace, and more than anything that I enjoyed looking at the book, trees. Yes. Well, the, the, this gate, the natural gate, is really about our relationship uh, to nature and to silence. And it's really all the times in our lives that we've had the experience of happiness and deep contentment and satisfaction and all the times that we've experienced grace uh, in our lives. Um, uh, it's really coming back into nature's rhythm. Nature's rhythm is medium to slow, uh, and we're creatures of nature. And uh, this is the place where we experience a, a sense of tenderness and sweetness uh, within our own nature, within others, and the places of poignancy of where we've really been contented or at peace or satisfied or comforted or in a place of solace or sanctuary. But this is different than than sentimentality. Oh, totally. No, this is just really coming into a place of, of there's it's a place of no striving or holding back. Uh, it's a pra- um, place of not, um, it's a place of total trust, uh, 
My goodness, that's that's awfully difficult to get to sometimes. Yeah, it's a, but we we experience moments of that at different times in our lives. But in the second half of life, there's a real longing um, for silence. I think it's very interesting that someone asked Saint Francis of Assisi, uh, you know, what's more powerful than the word, and he said action and someone else said well what's more powerful than action and he said silence um, because in the silence uh, all things are possible all things are possible so it's the slowing down to nature's rhythm uh, there's a lot we can do in the fast lane but there are two things we can never do in the fast lane we cannot integrate our experience and we cannot deepen our experience. And the natural gate is about deepening and integration and the contentment and satisfaction that comes from deepening processes or integrative processes. When we say someone has depth or they have substance, uh, we're really talking about this integration process, uh, uh, which is a deep reflection and retrospect that is without sentimentality, but uh, really seeing where have been uh, the places of joy and grace and happiness and where where are the places that we still need to mend uh, in our lives or that we want to course correct or uh, that... Uh, because be- beauty becomes really uh, important here, doesn't it? Oh, it does. Very much so. And it actually becomes an indicator. Yes. Uh, James Hillman talked about, uh, in one of his lectures, about we have to be much more mindful about being anesthetized or being without beauty. That Absolutely. And, and John O'Donohue, um, uh, also in his book, he wrote Beauty, the Invisible Embrace. And he really... Uh, you know, speaks that how much it is real soul food, beauty. Uh. And also I want to mention that um, uh, in West Marin and uh, in uh, Southwest Marin, we have a real incredible resource in, uh, in Muir Woods and the Redwoods. Oh, yes, and yes, and Mount Tambopias. It's such a, a, a deeply uh, healing experience yeah. for me to be among those trees. Yes. And among that and in that landscape. Yes. Because it's, there's a kind of wisdom there that, that I don't find or or a nurturing that I don't find anywhere else. Yeah. It's true because as children we spent more time outdoors than we spent indoors and as adults we have a tendency to reverse the process. But in the second half of life there's a major return back to nature and um, well in the Indian sense it's the forest dweller yeah the forest dweller or uh, archetypally too uh, uh, the spiritual traditions of the world uh, often say that if you really want to remember who you are uh, and if you feel lost uh, or depressed is that there are four places in nature for soul retrieval work or deep remembering which are uh, either the heart of the deep forest, the trees, or in the desert, or the mountains, or the oceans, or the riverlands. So the that's lakes. why the, there are many uh, people who are conducting vision quests in those yes. territories. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because that's really where the where the true vision is yes, available. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of the show here, but I have to say that. Um, in talking about the natural gate, you reminded me about uh, the Tao. Yes. And about uh, the Tao that can be spoken about isn't the real Tao. But yes. um, 
when I first began to look at the Tao Te Ching, it was so it was really profound because it, be, it talked about nature. Yes. But also there's an aspect of Taoism that is an alchemical process. And is this eight gates, uh, and the last gate is the gold gate, is this not about refining the gold of the soul? Yes, that's very well said. Yeah, <laughs> that's very well said. Right on target. <laughs> oh, Tell us about refining the gold of the soul. Um. Well, I think it's our lifelong process, uh, you know, the great journey of life itself. And the gold gate is where we learn about non-attachment and surrender and acceptance. Uh, and uh, it's the place of letting go. Uh, we practice every night the art and craft of dying by putting ourselves in a safe place called bed. And we trust and we let go, hoping that we'll return. But that's a practice of letting go uh, and dying, Uh, saying goodbyes, finishing and completing projects uh, are all practices uh, of making honorable closure of the great journey. What I'm so excited about is that, you know, the first half of life is like act one and act two of a great play. And the second half of life is like, how are you all going to bring it to resolution? You know, is this going to be a comedy, a tragedy, a history? You know, uh, you know, it's the third act. And, uh, and uh, so, and the exquisiteness of knowing and the urgency uh, that knowing that, you know, uh, we're on the westward side of the mountain. We've you know, we don't know how much time that we have left. And so things become more meaningful, you know, uh, little things become more meaningful. The use of time becomes more meaningful. Uh, People we want to spend time with, activities that we want to be involved with, uh, uh, how to generate and uh, pass on uh, to our children and grandchildren. Uh, and how to face and how to prepare for the ultimate mystery, uh, which is our death, which is another uh, birth, which is the, another gate. It's not it's, just one it's way. It's the silver gate again. You know, it's death. It's the gold gate and the silver gate coming together. Death's rebirth, which we we totally experience throughout all our lives. Practices on death's rebirth, letting go, and moving forward. Well, this has been really wonderful. I so much appreciate talking with you. Um, and uh, there, I understand that you, uh, you're from Spain. My, uh, my family is from Spain. Okay. And, and, my, and your I'm heritage is Basque? Totally Basque. On many generations on both sides. Mm-hmm. And the Basque language still remains a, a mystery language for uh, linguists, uh, although they... Think that the Basque people uh, might be the last of Cro-Magnon men, but uh, we really? still remain a mystery. And so, well, what uh, is it about the Basque language that th- there are things you can think about in the Basque language that aren't possible? Other than maybe I think what I understood that it may be possible in Hopi or one of the Native yeah, American languages right. about the way the fabric of time and space. It's right, and and also, mm. well, basically. Um, uh, the Basque language is is considered a, a very old language, and it's been uh, traced to, you know, there are similarities to uh, Japanese, to Iroquois, but there's 
uh, little synapses or words or structures, but uh, basically it's a, a language that um, uh, uh, thinks collectively as well as individually. Instead of saying my sister, we say our, uh, you know, or instead of my friend, it's our friend. Uh, so there's a uh, aspect of community that's built in the language and also uh, timelessness that's built in uh, to the language that the present and the future and and uh, the past are all in the present. So uh, it's an old, old language. Because uh, um, it seems to me you've actually kind of enfolded that in this book. Um, Probably, wittingly or unwittingly, <laughs> you know, it's deep embedded in my DNA, so. Yeah. Uh, well, we are at the end of our time here, and I'm, it's gone very fast, and I so much appreciate talking with you. Well, thank you, and uh, you're so good at what you do. You oh. made this so uh, easy and effortless, and what a great gift, and, and um, I just uh, really enjoy your program, and and um, thank you for bringing such good into the world. Well, thank you very much. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we have been talking with my guest, Angelus Arian. And how can people get a hold of you, Angelus? Uh, my website, www.angelusarian.com. So thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>